talk about revolution that's going a little bit too far. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of More Like the Worst Wing. I'm your host, Stu. And I'm Dave. Today we'll be discussing the sixth episode of Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing with a leftist eye on things in the year of many people's Lord 2018. Um, This episode title is Mr. Willis of Ohio. And we'll start with a quick plot recap uh, the episode and then dig in on some more political stuff as we go through. Um, Kick it off. The episode opens with a poker game. Yes. I remember poker. Very Star Trek (laughs) TNG, as you said here. (laughs) Yeah. Although that was more of a closing of the episodes, but definitely opened some of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, definitely a a TNG poker vibe here where poker sets up the conflict between two of our characters, in this case, uh, Toby and the president, I guess. Yeah, I mean, just kind of there's there's a conflict between principle and rhetoric a little bit that Mm -hmm. that immediately comes up. But it's also, um, it's just this... Uh, actually, never mind. We're, I'm, I'm going to not stop talking. <laughs> no problem. Uh, yeah, so Toby commits a couple poker etiquette fouls here that I will bring up. He string raises, which is when you raise after announcing that you've called to get a better read on your opponent. Anyone who listens who understands poker knows what I mean and understands that Toby is a monster for doing this. <laughs> uh, and then also it's basically just um, used as a way to, to just kind of I guess, kick up the theme of the episode. Um, it's So after the cold open, then we get a, uh, a meeting uh, with the president that gets interrupted by a, a security event. Yeah, it's an emergency, and they kind of just, they march the Secret Service into the room and say, excuse me, sir, please step away from the doors and windows, blah, blah, blah. No one can leave. No one can leave. And everybody just sort of, <laughs> it's funny, because everybody just sort of rolls their eyes like it's happening more often these days. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, very pre-9-11 mindset about security <laughs> being yeah. demonstrated. And fucking Mandy gets in her one-liner zinger about being like, Oh, this didn't happen where I used to work. <laughs> Just like, uh, God, this character is so bad and dumb. <laughs> she gets another weird thing that I'll mention later on when we get to um, the Mr. Willis part of the episode um, that I just thought was very strange. But, uh... So then we get our uh, one of our major plot lines that sort of ties into the Mr. Willis I- issue, which is that CJ doesn't understand what the census is and <sighs> goes to Sam to ask for help. Jesus. So, like, okay, you're the press secretary for the president of the fucking United States, and you don't know about the census? Like, she it, doesn't know anything she doesn't about know, it. She doesn't even know that Not it is constitutionally mandated. Not even what it is. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, uh, this is, this it is, is a little shocking. Well, and it's, it's it, also the entree to the, the sort of, um, the, un, the secondary theme in the episode is there is a lot of mansplaining. Oh, absolutely. Just threaded Although through I the will, whole episode. I'm going to give Sam a bit of a pass here in that CJ does ask him to explain the census to her. So I get, I think Sam gets a pass because it was, she effectively consented to mansplaining, essentially. Well, and I think it also continues the fact that, I mean, frankly, throughout the entire run of the season, I mean, I've said before that I really enjoy Toby's character. He goes off the rails once Aaron Sorkin bails out on yeah. the show oh, in yeah. season five. But throughout the season, CJ is played in my head 
as the bet or like the closest to how I would hope a person does in this job is she yeah there's a thing here where she absolutely just she concedes that she knows nothing she goes Mm -hmm. in humbly and asks for help Mm -hmm. and then like hope i mean hopefully takes that knowledge and applies it forward it seems very straightforward yeah and no and it's a fine plot line and everything and the initial reveal of i don't know what the census is is clearly meant to be a comedy (laughs) moment where, you know, she's hyper-competent in everything else, but she just doesn't know this one specific thing or anything about it. It's clearly meant to be kind of played for laughs and not taken super seriously. Uh, and hopefully, I think it doesn't damage, like, the viewer's uh, reputation of CJ, essentially. No, I don't think... It's also just... And, and again, this will... In the end, the quote-unquote victory that the staff mm-hmm. experiences isn't anything particularly substantial or significant. Right. <laughs> it's like, good job, guys. We uh, yeah. we got a thing approved that lets us use numbers differently. <laughs> it's like right. great, yeah, fantastic. Um, so then after the security lockdown event, uh, the Secret Service comes and briefs the president about what exactly it was. Turns out it was a crazy forty-year-old woman came onto the White House uh, lawn with a gun. Um, and the Secret Service agent basically says, like, hey, don't worry, you know, this is what we're here for, and security stopped her in time, we did our job exactly as as done. And the Secret Service guy, uh, his character's name is Ron Butterfield, and we will see him lots throughout the show, as he basically is our main Secret Service guy throughout the uh, remaining bit of uh, episodes. Yeah, it's really great. He gets, he sets up, and I think he come, he probably comes back, uh, gosh, I don't know. A dozen, At least a dozen, a dozen or times, yeah, 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 like or half dozen ish, some somewhere in there. Well, and he's he's played very straight. It's probably like an an ex military type guy who just right, you know, and he yeah plays him in a very down the fat, you know, down to earth, just the facts, Secret Service type, like exactly what you would expect. So, uh, good character uh, actor work. <laughs> out out of this shit, we get Josh and Donna talking about the kind of the next issue that they're going to tackle. The budget surplus. The budget surplus, which I think do, they do, say do. is thirty-two billion dollars, or Correct. thirty. It's thirty or thirty-two billion dollars. It's closer things. to thirty-two. Donna says thirty. Josh corrects her, saying it's closer to thirty-two. Yeah, and so they go through and they just say this, and then Toby takes on the onus of like naming a bunch of things that the budget is paying for this year. Right. Or some shit. And, and it's, man, this, the uh, stuff he lists just taps right into exactly what we were talking about last episode with your hurricane flood uh, prolix yep. you know, descriptions. Like, those are the kinds of things he's listing. Like, 1.2 million for a study about, you know, zitzi flies. And, like, <laughs> yeah. it's just like, it's all that kind of stuff that we just discussed. Like, that's jobs and that's research and that's stuff that pays off down it, the line it, and that's investment into the country. <laughs> it builds into the system that the country exists upon. And the biggest thing, like, it's almost an immediate tell because they're, and actually this is part of what causes the problem with American mm-hmm. thought processes on it, is that the single largest dollar amount that they assign to any of these, like, ho oh, ho, so wacky type of programs is $2 million. And if it's you, millions. Yeah, it's literally. Yeah, <laughs> if you have a $30 billion surplus, I just wrote it down, you could have 15,000 of these wacky programs. These types of studies without breaking a <laughs> without, sweat. Yeah, without yeah. even trying. You could just invent yeah. that many of 15 fucking well, thousand of these things. Yeah, and, you know, this this 
you know, this realization goes forward to thinking that, you know, if we just slash the military budget in half, imagine what we could pay for. When I did some research for a little bit of studies, the federal budget that was proposed and eventually passed in 2000 was $1.8 trillion. And mm-hmm. I just laughed when I was reading it because the defense budget request was $294 billion. And yeah. they eventually passed a $350 billion defense budget. And oh, yeah. this is in context of this week's news of them passing a $617 billion defense budget for this year i'd also like to note out that whenever defense budgets get passed it's just the amount for the year but whenever healthcare things are mentioned it's always the amount it's going to cost over 10 years i always see that framing but never for the military it's not that we passed a 60 trillion dollar defense defense budget even though effectively we have in fact it's going to be much larger than 60 trillion over 10 years but we never see that framing for some reason convenient very convenient so uh so now we let's get into the main topic of this episode in fact let's cut here and we'll discuss in the next segment what mr willis of ohio has to do with anything so our eponymous man mr willis of ohio is filling in for his deceased wife who used to be a senator from ohio uh and taking her place on a certain committee that is uh, the, cen- the census committee uh, to basically determine whether or not they should either use the current and, out- and outdated method of whole counting or the modern and updated method of s- politically sampling. Yeah, so it's a, they, they want to use like a statistical modeling functionality not to necessarily supplant a direct headcount in the census, but to enable them to better register and sort of account for populations that may be underserved by the current method. Correct. And uh, this is something that Sam lays out in his argument with CJ, is that the current census method of just hiring a bunch of people and having them go knock on doors and fill out surveys heavily underrepresents people like the homeless, inner city minorities, people who can't speak English as a first language, you know, the, 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 the marginalized of society more vulnerable get get heavily underrepresented by these censuses and that causes huge political problems absolutely because uh, and especially in the hellhole that is america these days this is a non-insignificant portion of the population that we're talking about being underrepresented absolutely so uh the argument being made is that uh you know it's in the constitution is the defense of of the sen- of the senators who don't <laughs> want to do sampling is basically like the the constitution says we have to do a census therefore we have to do it the most old fashioned and arcane way possible. This is so this is so weird like the the guy at like almost in the same breath says like oh well you know it says that we have to do this census but I'm not a fucking constitutional scholar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not constitutional scholars, Toby. But, but here's what the Constitution says. It's like, wait, what? Well, you you just said that the Constitution says this, and now you're trying to duck my argument that like the document is not at all applicable. Which yeah, the Constitution is like a two-page document. <laughs> I would expect every senator to be familiar yes, enough with it at the very to not, least. not to not be freaking out about like, wait, we're gonna read four sentences from the Constitution? I'm not a scholar, Toby. <laughs> Holy shit! Using my words? I don't think so. 
oh my god. And so, the the Mr. Willis of Ohio, who, as he mentions, is not a senator, he's a social studies teacher, uh, then comes across the right argument once Toby makes the, uh, and you know what, let's actually put in the clip here. Actually, that's not what it says. What, what do you mean? Mandy left out a few words, didn't she, Mr. Willis? Yes. Mr. Willis teaches eighth grade social studies, and Mr. Willis knows very well what the article says. It says, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons and three-fifths of all other persons. Three-fifths of all other persons. They meant you, Mr. Willis, didn't they? Yes. Mr. Willis, you are asking to enact a law which will limit the ability of those people who need to be counted the most to be counted as people at all. And their only refuge is the argument that Article 1, Section 2 is not arcane. And so Toby makes the argument that, you know, when we don't count people right, it leads to things, bad things, you know. Bad things! Uh, which uh, an 8th grade social studies teacher is going to pick up on when they leave out the three-fifths compromise from the, the bit that they read. Yeah, and so... Watching this, I was, again, I'm still sort of thinking through my reaction to this scene because there's a lot of things that happen here. And, I mean, to, to their credit, the writing was made it a little ambiguous how, mm-hmm. the, how the decision and how the impact of it plays out. Because on the one hand, it's clearly it's Toby just for purely political ends manipulating mm-hmm. this guy via something Absolutely. that is that is just like uh, you know it's appalling that he decides to use this angle of a, of attack frankly to get mm-hmm. him to change his vote however mm-hmm. but but right go ahead well i was going to say however he does come around almost independently to the correct thing and toby assumes that he will right and so it's it's sort of like a question of is Toby manipulating his decision here or is he facilitating him to have the I guess to feel the autonomy to make that decision to make on the, his own. the correct decision exactly correct. so it's like yeah. you get some air the, in the room by making the by making the kind of manipulative argument right the show definitely wants us to see it the latter way and I'm more inclined to to give them that leniency because Toby does come out and admit right afterwards, like, Hey, I, I manipulated you. That was a very cheap, like manipulative tactic that I did. And the guy's like, yeah, but you were right. So it's fine. (laughs) Well, and I'm sure it's, again, the guy, the guy is savvy enough to realize that's like, this is what's going on. And also I, I think there's actually, this is another mixed thing that happens here. It's like, well, they, they spend this time and give him lines of dialogue, frankly, to say, I'm not my wife. I'm not that mm-hmm. smart. I'm not that good at this thing. But in the mm-hmm. end, he, he is. Like, he, he does exactly the, like, right. the, the correct thing by him and, frankly, probably by his constituents. And so there's... I think it's a very Sorkin-esque thing of, like, even dumb people can do right sometimes, where, like, you know, he's not, he he doesn't have the list of qualifications that every normal Sorkin player has, you know, he doesn't have three PhDs and two law degrees. But three PhDs! This, but, e- yeah, but even this dumb common man can be made to, made to see what the right way is, and that's where it gets a little dicier but then again he is savvy enough to pick up on it all so the episode kind of slides between 
giving him credit and then taking it away. Yeah, and like it, this is actually pretty. It's a common theme and something that drives me crazy because it's like you know what actually people are smart enough just generically and again from, yeah. from a from an organizing perspective people know what's important and if you are doing the kind of the the grassroots community-based type of stuff people are perfectly capable of representing themselves and voting in their own interest if yeah. you give them the chance yes absolutely and this sort of lack of faith in the common man will be a recurring theme uh in the west wing episodes particularly in any of the ones where they're campaigning uh, and they have to interact with real America, and they're terrified. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Um... Uh, so speaking of interacting with real America, <laughs> let's then then jump into uh, our next big scene that is like big and dramatic and really like TV drama, and that's uh, the gang goes to a bar because uh, the president thinks that Josh should take Charlie out for a beer since he's so young and hardworking and has nothing going on with his life, which is the one decent and good thing the president probably does this whole episode <laughs> is encourage this. Yeah, is is let him you know feel a sense of normalcy among this this staff of in- again intellectual titans right charlie is no, just this a is common actually, man yeah this is actually a good like team building exercise mm-hmm. i would i would argue here or even just giving them time off sure. is a yeah. nice thing to do as an employer like and and he should be lauded for it because uh bartlett does a lot of te- other terrible shit in this episode <laughs> that we boy, haven't really gotten into boy, yet doesn't he? but he's mostly aw- he's mostly awful and insufferable starting from the poker game where he's insufferable about trivia so let's give him credit for the one nice thing he does of like, hey, go take Charlie out for yeah, a that's beer. right. You guys go um, hang out off campus for a while. We'll be fine. <laughs> but during said beer getting and hanging out, where they're all just kind of hanging out and chatting, uh, Zoe goes up to the bar to get a drink for CJ, which first off, question mark, how does that happen? I'm pretty sure bars don't let young girls go up to the bar, order a drink and say, no, it's for my adult <laughs> yeah, friend. Well, she's, she's canonically 18. 19? 19. Yeah, so definitely 19. not legal. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Charlie mentions her age specifically to the uh, three men who then come up and interrogate her at the bar uh, for obvious reasons. Oh my god, this was, like, I, I had actually sort of forgotten about this scene, and this was... Um, Shocking? Yeah, sort of. Uh, I, was, I was physically taken aback by this. It's yeah. like walking by and just doing a double take when this shit happens, because it for the sake of the narrative structure of the episode it happens like in the blink of an eye it escalates yeah, so it quickly. goes so like fast. We, we we cut to her at the bar and then the second we then cut three guys have magically appeared and surrounded her to uh, to affect what i'll call like uh frat stalking position uh, and it's of like keeping her trapped in yeah and so and Again, it outside like it, it's structured really well. Like the shot is built such that it is very threatening, and just right. like like it, it goes from. And she of course leaves her panic button <laughs> before going to the bar because of course well, you, you, you know you don't you're safe you're in a you're in a college <laughs> town, Missy. So uh, yeah yeah go no, ahead. it's the, this so the three guys the three guys are just you know they're they're played up stereotypes the of the worst type of frat boy stuff and they're like they're sort of they're they're hitting on her but basically assuming that she's gonna like going that it's working yeah, that, that it's, it's already working, working. and it, from the second that oh, a word has escaped their lips she is enchanted which is just with them super gross out the gate and then 
holy shit, they come in. Oh, and Charlie comes in. Well, and so Charlie gets up to go and see what's up. So this is actually the one time, and this is something, a minor point I was going to make later, is that the black men in this episode are portrayed as like, the, the sort of like the innocents or the naifs who are brought around to do the right thing. A lack of agency, I would but, say. Yeah, agreed. But the, the subtext of this is that the only agency that Charlie experiences in this episode is a stereotypically like urban situation where, you know, mm-hmm. black men like do this all the time. And it's, I'm probably reading a little too deep into it, but it just seemed a little gross to be like, well, Charlie knows what to do in these street situations. It's like a ugh. little bit. It's definitely like a little bit. Like he know, yeah. Like he knows how to how to throw. Or down like he's got a situational awareness about it. Like he knows what's going to happen as soon as he sees it. Like he's he's got his head on a swivel out here. It's yeah. just like or you could argue he was like interested in Zoe and that's sure, why he was following her. Absolutely. But it's definitely a little bit of like you know, oh, he's real good at it because he's hood, you know. But let me tell you, I don't know if it's if it's a 2018 sensibility here, having grown up and you know, em- embraced my socialist tendencies. But hearing the word the f word being spoken mm-hmm. on network TV at 9 p.m. on a Wednesday night, yeah, is now to be super jarring. <laughs> editor's note post hoc i realize that there are a lot of people who aren't actually watching the show along with us so i'd like to include um the clarification here that the f word to which i refer is not the wonderful universal swear and just brilliant linguistic device fuck but rather the slur that is used to denigrate and refer to gay people it was literally broadcast on tv Totally. Uh, and to be fair to the show, I'll give them credit. It's portrayed extremely negatively. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, this isn't, it's not, it's like, it's the opposite of a casual one, which you would see in like Bill and Ted. Uh, oh, it's, it's basically, it's basically like, it's a, uh, like it's a prelude or a predicate to sexual assault. It is assault. the identifier. Yeah. And it is the identifier that these guys aren't just like misguided. They're bad guys. (laughs) Like that is where the scene turns. Yeah. Well, and well, they also, I mean, they call, they call Charlie Sammy, which is super gross. Oh God. Um, Multiple times. Yeah, And, and that's like, all this is just to say that like this scene kind of came out of nowhere and it's actually, when I think about it now, it's like, yes, the, the, the kind of the, the portrayal of this happening was done very well, but it's just super weird. To see it, just yeah, to be like, it, oh, this was just a, like a normal narrative device. Well, and ultimately, you know, it, you can tell it's constructed because of what it leads to, which is the conversation with her father. Ugh. You know, we had to have this scene happen so that that conversation could be had. We sure did. Uh, so now let's, you know what, let's go ahead and just dig <laughs> yeah. into that conversation. We, we, can, we can talk about the, uh, the the presidential foibles in this episode right. a little so, more in so depth. To, to wrap all that up, you know, then finally someone grabs the panic button, hits it, Secret Service comes in, fucks the guys up super hard. Charlie gets in a nice line about how if one of them is carrying cocaine, he's going to be locked up for a very long time. Hashtag war on drugs. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and thankfully they're dealt with. But then, there, you know, there are repercussions back at the White House. Yeah, so eventually we end up back at the White House and the president gets the opportunity to sort of wrap up all this stuff that happened with his daughter. And 
It carries on a theme that was really just, uh, throughout this episode, was just awful, where he is basically just going off on being the patriarch and being the paterfamilias and, like, what he says goes and, like, you know, nobody has any agency or whatever. So with the Zoe thing, you know, she comes home and, you know, he gives her kind of the, you know, the stereotypical boomer dad speech of... Mm-hmm. How dare you go to this place? Do you know who I am? <laughs> the, yeah. the invocation of his his narcissism in this speech is actually yeah. really great. It's like I'm the most important person in the world, and so therefore, how dare you? Therefore, you can't go <laughs> yeah, anywhere. How dare you go out there and like you know put yourself in harm's way or whatever? Right. He literally just wants to put her in a bubble, effectively, and like that's no way to live a life. Yeah, and she articulates that point, but it is very much, it's all played up as sort of, um, you know, him being in the right for having a, a caring attitude towards these terrible, scary things that happen right. out there. Right, because, you know, her getting kidnapped is much worse than anyone else getting kidnapped because it has political implications, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to just kidnapping just is bad, kid, like, and it's bad yeah. when it happens to anyone. I, I'd prefer anybody to, to not die. It's sort of like, it's just like, what's his name? The Doctor from the very, the, the second episode. Right. It's just like, well, it happened to this guy, so it's super knew. important. Yeah, and this is my kid, who I know even more. Even more so, yeah. Yeah, it's very... Very, very, very weird. Well, and it's the continuation of the thing, because earlier in the episode, Leo finally is able to break the news to oh, right. to his, frankly, his best friend. Like, you know, they, they embarked on this journey together, and they've known each other for, you know, 40 years or whatever mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. And so Leo is finally able to find a space to breathe and tell the president that he is getting divorced from his wife. Mm-hmm. And... The, it's clearly been weighing on him. Well, yeah, for a and while. and he's yeah. he's really excited, to, not not excited to, but he's he's gratified he's to have the opportunity to, to get to, it off to get chest, it off his yeah. chest and tell his best friend, frankly, what's going on in his life, all this stuff, and the president's reaction is like the worst possible thing to do. <laughs> it's just it's like you fucked this up, you go fix it, and I'll talk to you later. It's just like, yeah. are you fucking kidding? You guys are sixty plus years old, and it comes down to being like, oh, you did your wife bad. You gotta better, go. Better go fix it. And the like, he already tried that shit. He already well, got the better, pearl necklace. He already got the violin. Is that- his daughter even admits earlier in the episode, like, he tells his daughter, like, hey, we're going to work it out. It's going to be fine. And she goes, no, yeah. it's and not. Says, nope. I've talked to mom. <laughs> like, you're not getting back together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mallory's like, nope, I know what's going on in both of your lives. And yeah. this is not on the table at this yeah, point. Yeah, so this this idea, yeah, this idea. Bartlett's advice much worse than his own daughter's even yeah. of like his daughter is like hey just learn to cope with it because it's happening yeah and it's a very I mean again and presumably I presumably more sympathetic than that obviously well it's just it's it's it is disappointing and it's less the show doesn't actually hammer that point home that we should be disappointed mm-hmm. in the, the president for doing this because there is a there's a tension that you feel and you know John Spencer raises his voice which he never does and like right. all this stuff but at the same time it's all it's a very both sidesy way to look at it where it's just like yeah. actually no one got the last word in that one you know <sighs> yeah and actually Mr. President you're just a fucking shithead 
like, <laughs> help your friend out here. Yeah. And it'd be interesting if the show ever, like, tackled this, like, you know, oh, he's bad at dealing with people because he's such a good politician or whatever, but we never even get a hint of that. And I think even worse, it also, it colors his interaction with politics because people um, sort of have internalized this idea that he is good at mm-hmm. interacting with people. He's not, he's not, again, he's not an egghead. He's not a wonk. Right. He's not out there, you know, using technical Cause terms. Because jo- he can joke around a little. <laughs> yeah, because he can play poker with his buddies. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. So then, uh, uh, so that that's sort of the other thing I'd like to touch on, that's completely unrelated, but we totally forgot about, is back to the budget surplus. Mm. So we have a running theme throughout the thing. And the West Wing Weekly uh, podcast calls them Teladonnas, and I see no reason to reinvent a <laughs> yeah. perfectly good phrase, so I'll call them Teladonnas too. Works fine for where me. Don- where Donna asks Josh an expositional question to be our audience surrogate, and the one she's asking is about the budget surplus, and she says, hey, the Republicans' plan is to use it for tax reform, a.k.a. just cut everyone a, a check, like a $700 check, and the Democrats' plan is to... Uh, in Josh's words, pay down the debt and stabilize social security. Uh, Yikes. Pay down the debt. To who, Josh? Yes, to indeed. To who are we paying it? And what does, advantage does paying down the debt have? Yes, well, why is this better? And Donna almost like articulates the counter-argument to that is it's a velocity of money question that Absolutely. she puts in. So yeah, go ahead. Donna's argument, now that I thought about it more, I didn't have a good framing of it but now i do donna's argument is keynesian as fuck donna's argument is that you take that money and you give it back to the people and the people put it back into the economy and then josh's counter to that is but what if you put a little of it into a foreign economy (laughs) he's like wait but but if you screw it up even in the slightest those damn dirty foreigners will get their hands on our capital it's like this this is not how it works this is another thing the show has done before where um or, or not before, later. Uh, oh, shit, was it before? What's the one where Charlie's asking about uh, what Charlie spent his tax refund on? That's must that, be later. It's later on, yeah, because I okay. remember the thing with the We'll the get filing. to that later yeah. then. But, uh, but this is a common theme that the show goes to of individualizing it. Of uh, and this is something sort of our last episode t- talked on was the systemic versus individual effect of things. So the idea is that one Donna screwing it up by buying one Japanese player screws up the whole thing for everyone. (laughs) Well, and it's, it's very, um, this is something that I've actually been a big fan of the, the framing recently is that everything boils down to like an individual morality play Mm -hmm. where they don't actually grapple with what any of this means. It's just like, no, you specifically, we don't trust you to do this. So we're right. just going to we're going to abstract it and take it out of your uh, your responsibility. Like, it's right. just it's awful. And your you know, your your point about the kind of the, the Keynesian side of things is that it's just the people putting money to work is the right. opposite of vampire capital. You know, right. it's just exactly it's just numbers on a ledger somewhere. Instead it's much of, better to have that $32 billion poured back into the economy. Now, it doesn't have to be directly through cutting everyone a $700 check. You can do it by infrastructure grants. You can do it with, you know, teacher funding. You can do it through various ways and means of doing it. But Josh's idea of using it to pay down the debt <laughs> doesn't help anyone. It's, it's literally what is the least 
productive thing you can do. And, oh, we can adjust and this if he could actually, Yeah, if he could actually fix Social Security with $30 billion, I'd give him a gold fucking medal. <laughs> no but, shit. like, that's Im- clearly impossible. So the idea that it's going to be used to fix Social Security is total bullshit, too. Well, and that's another, so, it's, it's another conservative framing of the issue, too, is that Social Security needs to be saved at right. all. Whereas well, they're... Not only at all, at once. It has oh, to be sure. done at yeah, once. Yeah. And not that it hasn't been tweaked throughout its entire existence. <laughs> and, and like constantly saved and resaved and resaved. Well, because because it is a continual scheme of investing and repurposing this money, where it's just like... but the And again, you mentioned, it's just like there are a couple very basic policy proposals to put out there that if any party was actually interested... Mm-hmm. In preserving the state of shit, I don't know, the welfare state, social security, any of these public, non-defense related initiatives, yeah. there are a couple very easy decisions to make that could just do away with all these problems literally totally. forever. Yeah, if we remove the income cap on social security, we it would be funded indefinitely forever. Yeah. Like, or at least for, you know, the next 70 years, which is effectively forever. If we, if we didn't approve the recent budget hike for the military, we could just end homelessness. Yeah. Just, just straight like, up do away with people things, not having a place to live. But these things are outside the various serious types of, uh, of people that the West Wing loves to glamorize. Absolutely. You know, moving, moving numbers around in spreadsheets to more precisely define a problem. Or, you know, whatever it is that doesn't actually result in a victory or a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that basically wraps up the major topics. Did you have anything else to add here at the end? I have one final note, which is that Foo, Fire, Foo Fighters is playing in the bar that they go to. <laughs> uh, and it just made me smile. Well, I feel even older than that because I could have sworn that song didn't exist before the year 2000. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's, um, it's Learn to Fly, right? It's Learn to Fly. It is Learn to Fly. <laughs> and of that, course it is. that album was out, I think, in 1999. The video for that has a cameo by Tenacious D. It's wonderful, <laughs> and everyone should watch it. Man, I'm, uh, I'm real old. <laughs> I know. We both are, buddy. <laughs> so um, this has been another episode of The Worst Wing. Thank you for joining and listening in. Thank you. It's been a fun one, uh, and I hope you all enjoyed it. As always, we welcome any of your comments, feedback, engagement in the thread. Uh, I'm Wombalord. He is Gunshow Poophole. And uh, we look forward to the next episode, which is going to be episode 7. Google, 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 Google. Which is going, (laughs) which is entitled... (laughs) The State Dinner. Ooh. So, uh, Sounds I classy. Think this might be our, I think this might be the first one we have with uh, the first lady. Uh, or Ooh. no, wait, she showed up earlier, nope, didn't nope, she? Nope, nope, I, uh, I think you're right. I think this is when no, we first meet. No, because we haven't meet. talked about her since the intro episode. Yep, I think this is when we first meet the, the first Delightful lady. Delightful Stalker <laughs> Jan as the first lady. And I feel like this is, um, there's a, a wrap-up of the Lori thing here. Maybe. Oh, that's correct. Yeah, she totally comes back in the in one, in a big dinner okay. uh, thing. Okay. So I believe you're right. A lot so of cool exciting shit. stuff to look look forward to next week. <laughs> uh, again, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye bye. All the money you ask for, but don't ask me to come on 